0: Welcome to the Solo 2.0 podcast, where two sisters, Jess and Rai, focused on health and hormone balance to help you step into that 2.0 version of you. Growing up, we heard all about hormones. Sometimes more
1: than we wanted. From our mom, who is a hormone health educator. As we
0: got older, we rebelled and experienced our own health struggles and ups and downs. But today we have businesses helping people get in tune with their bodies, break free from restrictive eating and lifestyle habits, and learn how to balance their hormones naturally. So
1: what can you expect from this podcast? Honest conversations and hot topics that should be more mainstream, like period health, cycle tracking, non-hormonal birth control, and our unique take on fad diets and trends that aren't always so supportive for women. Plus, interviews with health and wellness entrepreneurs making a big impact in the world.
0: Ladies, it's time we align with our powers and redefine what healthy
1: means to us. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the Solo 2.0 podcast. This is Ryan, co-founder of Your Hormone Balance. And my co-host is my sister, hormone health coach Jess Sucan. She is the founder of Body Bliss by Jess. This week's episode is one of my favorite interviews we've ever done, honestly, because it's packed with helpful information every woman should hear, whether or not, you know, the title of this is something you can relate to. I think it's really important to everyone. And our guest is my gut health practitioner, Bree Weisselman, who has helped me so much with a myriad of gut health symptoms that I've been experiencing um, for the last, I guess, year or two. Um, this episode is actually not focused on gut health, but it is something that Brie specializes in. And so I'm going to share more about my experience working with her in an upcoming episode, and hopefully we'll have her back on to focus on gut health. Um, but yeah, I've had gut health issues since I was a child. And, um, in recent years, I guess last five years diagnosed with SIBO, I've worked with so many doctors, both Western, medical and integrative and naturopaths. And Brie was the first practitioner who's really addressed all of my concerns and really helped me connect the dots between symptoms I've been experiencing uh, using multiple gut health tests she ordered for me. So I just feel like I've really been heard and felt seen by her. And she's just been so thorough and she's so smart. And you'll see that in this conversation today more about Bree. She is a licensed primary care provider and medical director of Brie Weissleman integrative health. Besides being an expert in hormone balance, fertility and perimenopause, she specializes in helping people heal digestive problems such as IBS, ul- ulcerative colitis, parasitic infections, candida overgrowth and SIBO to build a bulletproof microbiome. And I'm actually going to be doing a candida detox for two months. Um, working with Bree starting at the beginning of the year. So I will report back and let you know how that goes. During this particular conversation, though, Bree really focuses on her experience getting diagnosed with PCOS as a very young adult and how she was able to relieve severe symptoms through lifestyle lifestyle and nutritional adjustments. Bree also explains how PCOS is diagnosed, the connection to insulin resistance, and actionable steps that you can take to become more insulin sensitive shares her honest opinion on herbs and supplements for PCOS and insulin resistance and when it's necessary to use a medication like metformin or spironolactone, as well as her thoughts on hormonal birth control. And I mentioned this this topic being important for all women because every woman should be focused on balancing blood sugar levels daily. So even if you don't have insulin resistance... It could become that if you're not aware of how you're sort of building your meals and, you know, tending towards more sugary, processed, refined, starchy meals. So just something to really be aware of and get ahead of because a lot of times these problems develop down the line. Brie also gets vulnerable about the ups and downs she experienced in perimenopause, including being pregnant with gestational diabetes having a baby at 40 during COVID, then experiencing back-to-back, very life-changing circumstances in her personal life. So we are very grateful to Brie for being so honest with us, as well as for the incredible work she does helping women every day. And I wanted to mention that Brie is offering a course for perimenopausal women ages 35 to 55 right now. Um, This program is focused on helping women reverse age their bodies, skin, energy, and hormones. So they can shift to truly finding pleasure in every day, no matter what life they are choosing. You can check out our show notes to find a link to a webinar and or get more information about her program. Finally, before we go, I wanted to clarify something that we talk a lot about in this episode that can be confusing for women. I've mentioned it already. I just want to double down. It's the the topic of insulin resistance. So just keep in mind, insulin resistance is something we want to avoid. It can be harmful to your health, while insulin sensitivity is a good thing. So just keep that in mind. Bree also mentions a very affordable and accessible way that you can monitor your blood sugar levels from home with a finger prick, which is great. We also wanted to add another option that we did not discuss. This would be using a continuous glucose monitor, which is a painless device that you wear on your arm for you know up to 14 days at a time. And it monitors your glucose levels throughout the day and then uploads the data to an app. So you can really see how you recover from different meals and get long-term data. So we had um, one of the nutritionists from the brand NutriSense on our podcast this year, earlier this year. Um, that was a really good episode if you want to go back and learn more about blood sugar balance, but NutriSense is a glucose monitor that we really like. It includes access to a dietitian, and Jess has a code for $30 off, which we have added to the show notes. So just wanted to add that as an option if this is something you're concerned about. Um, and I honestly want to do it too. I don't have insulin resistance, but I'm super curious just to get more data and information about how my body responds to carb intake, for example, which is something Brie talks a lot about. She has a lot of interesting points that I don't think get discussed enough, um, especially important for women as we age and we reach that perimenopause zone because it can be harder um, or we can become more sensitive to um, to certain amounts of carbs and food combining becomes really important. Food combining and food timing. So that's also something we talk about. Okay. So that's all for now. When this episode airs, um, it's going to be just about Thanksgiving. So Happy holiday week to all of you. We hope you have a restful, delicious day with friends and family. Now enjoy this conversation with Brie Weissleman. When I finally reached out to you and had my consultation and did all the testing, I was blown away by how knowledgeable you are. You are the smartest person I've ever heard talk about the gut and the connection to hormones and your passion and your personality. It's just something I want to share with as many women. I've told so many friends about you. Um, Just so worth the investment and the time to get so many more answers than I've ever gotten from working with anybody. So thank you for the work that you do. And I just wanted to start there, having you share your why for doing this work and then take us back. And I'm sure it's, I know it's connected to the very early days of your health challenges.
2: Yeah. Oh, well, first of all, just thank you. I'm like, oh, I'm trying to, I'm like soaking that in and receiving that. <laughs> and that just makes like everything I do so worth it to hear even one person say that. So thank you, Ryan. And it's uh, true. It's true. Uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity. Um sure. Okay, so like the why I do what I do right now has to do the work the, the the form I'm doing my work in has changed a lot, as with most practitioners over the years. And currently what it looks like is I still have some one-on-one practice, of course. Um, but I am also starting to move in the direction of working in groups. And there's some reasons for that, and I'll get to like the why big why in a minute. But basically, I realized that there was a gap missing in helping empower. I work with a lot of women. I've done a lot of like reproductive medicine in formal senses, like in IVF clinics and stuff in the past, as well as the gut health and some other things. And so, all of the things that we do to like make a body fertile and pregnant and like enhance that um, hospitability to a um, growing baby are really the things we do to like enhance wellness through this perimenopausal chapter that comes after that. And then in all the rest of our decades. And so there's this gap in our education as women, just in general, in understanding like what are the things that we can and should be doing and how does that shift from what we've been doing in this moment to not just decide that this is a moment we, to not perceive this as a moment of decline, right? How do we actually feel great? And what I know to be true is that when women feel really good, um when they're happy when they feel physically well it's easier for them to find their like joy and their pleasure and to like go after like is my life full of meaning am i actualizing my purposes and when women are in that place then everyone around them benefits everything they touch turns to gold so my secret mission is really like increase you know in the words of longevity like well span play span creator span you know all of that right like connectivity increase the length of time we enjoy our years. And that's how I can better the world is by helping each of these women. What I realized is that in the form of... There's certain moments you need this like one-on-one care because you are like having a problem and really need this very intricate footwork done to get you to a different ledge to stand on. But with this, where it's like, well, nothing's like so broken, but there's a lot that's not quite right. A, that is better with a lot of like education because it's more empowerment work. It's like, here's your magic wand back. I'm going to give you these tools and systems to over time implement that are going to be a game changer for the big picture. And a lot of that is epigenetics, like lifestyle medicine, right? Like how what we choose, things that are empowered our, our to choose and how that influences the way our genes express during this time and therefore the, uh, you know, experience we have. But also, what I recognized is that it's not effective for me to deliver that in like a half hour or one hour format every four to eight weeks, because there's so much education and we can only really absorb it once, uh, you know, so much at once. So to drip out that information in kind of like a content video modules while having access to me multiple times a week to get more clarity, how does this apply to me? How do I action on it? That's much more effective for women as well as groups. So there's this physiological, you know, we talk about the stress response as fight or flight, but there's a acknowledgement even in research literature that in in particular, it's in all all animals, but in particular in female animals in various species, there's this re- stress response called tend and befriend, and it's this concept that inherent to female animals was an acknowledgement you were better able to survive in groups working together. It's not just all for one, or you know, what you know, just out for my success, right? So um, basically, what I recognize is that there's a huge amount of healing that happens in group settings because of being witnessed, being seen, having shared experience, where it normalizes. What you're feeling and makes it not so weird or not so isolating. And then also the inspiration you get from seeing things positively role modeled and encouraged and getting that message repeat amount of times so that you know to keep going or seeing someone just a little bit ahead of you who's gotten more results or helping another person who's like just starting and is a little unsure in their journey. All of that is healing for all of us. So I recognize that really the future of medicine largely is in groups when we're talking about like meeting the needs of the masses and also this kind of well care, uh, you know, thing. And so, um, so that's like my kind of why I do what I do. Um, Beautiful. And yeah, yeah. And then there's a long journey that brought me to that place, of course, but that's where yeah. I Yeah.
1: Yeah. Let's go back to the beginning. We know you had PCOS. Mm-hmm. What were your earliest memories of struggling with symptoms and yeah. how old were you and how did that begin?
2: Yeah. So to talk about that, I actually need to go back even a little bit further. So what happened is I was so just a couple of like. Out breaths about it, like I um, when I was very young, I had extremely severe asthma that really impacted my childhood, I was on a lot of drugs every day. There was a lot of things I could and couldn't do. Fast forward to around fourth or fifth grade, I actually started developing some eating disorders not something I recommend for anybody. However, one of the things that happened was because I was cutting out whole food groups that I didn't know were a trigger for my asthma, my asthma got a lot better, like mm-hmm. radically. Now I had to heal from the eating disorders and heal my relationship with food. But what happened was along the line, along the way, what happened was that I had also become kind of like a vegan or vegetarian pretty young. And so by the time I got to high school and was of reproductive age, all my friends had gotten their periods and I didn't get mine until I was like 17 and change. And um, no one really like said anything about it to me. No doctors really said anything other than ask if I would gotten it. And at the time, the concept of what PCOS was, was not well-known. And certainly it was not well-known that it wasn't just this one like meme, like PCOS model we had of like, okay it's you know you're you're obese and have a mustache and like these other things right and that was not how i presented so no one really knew what that was so i got a period then i would get them like every 6 to 9 months and i just never had any idea what was going on and i didn't i had, my skin was great as a teen but when i was like 21 i started getting acne and then i just had a lot of like mood swings and instability that way and energy swings and like i had no idea what was going on but unbeknownst to me, because I had this kind of not healthy version of a vegetarian and vegan diet, I was just overeating carbs for my body's tolerance. And I have you know a background tone of less sensitivity to my insulin because of the PCOS and the genes that promote that. And so somewhere in my early 20s, I started having panic attacks. Really crippling ones. And that lasted for about two years and came paired with the onset of this like insomnia, sleep onset insomnia. And so, like, I was just out of whack and I was like gaining weight and I, it just didn't feel good. I didn't feel healthy. And no one, I tried Chinese medicine. I tried talking to my herbalist teachers. I tried, you know, different things. I finally went to a naturopath who was like, okay. Um, you need omegas. You like haven't been eating any. Also, you need protein. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll try it. So I ate some salmon therapeutically. <laughs> and it was like a huge hurdle to get over. And I remember eating like those bites of salmon and literally an hour later being like, whoa, it was like everything had come back online. Like I had to go out for a run. I was like, okay, wow, there's something going on here. So this was the end of my career as a vegan. And kind of, I realized that my body, which ironically, I have genes for like radically high protein need. Um, so, long story short, I started to do my own detective work and realize like there's something here about the foods I'm eating and, and my hormones. Um, when I'm eating more protein and less of these carby foods, I get more periods and my acne is better. Like, what's going on? And so, I started to uncover that the concept of PCOS and understand that that related to me and self diagnosed and um so basically at that point i was already studying like first herbal medicine and then you know chinese medicine as an entire system and functional medicine woven into that and so that was like the journey of like how do i understand the relationship between what's going on with my food and my hormones and the uh, the very real felt sense that those were very linked right because basically when i started eating a diet that balanced my blood sugar and met my nutritional needs Everything started to get better. And of course, there were steps I took that were not just diet. I had to understand that I had, you know, had to fix my gut ecology and microbiome and work with some other things. But the roles of these things, the diet was profound. And so that was really the clincher. And so, yeah, so basically that brought me into working a lot with reproductive medicine and then gut health because the real other pivot point for me was when I started diagnosing and treating these, you know, pathogens or overgrowth or dysbiosis in the gut and treating that, that was when like a lot of the hormonal symptoms of the PCOS radically changed for me. Um, So there was real felt experiences of like, hey, nutrition matters. Um, Gut health matters for my hormones. And that's true at any age, whether we're a teen, whether we're trying to have a baby, whether we're in perimenopause or after.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's really cool that you kind of became your own, I always call it like compassionate detective where you started to just ask more questions and lean into your symptoms and you were really open it, open to changing your diet, which I think is really hard coming from a vegan or vegetarian diet. I'm not sure exactly why you're a vegan or vegetarian, but um, that also you know can be pretty strong for people. I was vegan for six months only, but even coming out of that and deciding to eat fish because my body was craving it was like a mind F for me. Like I was like, oh my gosh, am I really doing this? Um, There was a little bit, bit of guilt involved. So I think it's so important that as women, especially, we really do listen to those messages from our body. And I think sometimes we try to fight against it, trying to be so extreme with wanting to follow a specific set of rules or diet um, but anyway, I wanted to dig into, I think with PCOS, there's a lot of confusion around the yeah. symptoms and also how to get diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, I work with a lot of clients who suspect that they have PCOS because they have a lot of the the symptoms, like they have acne, they have yeah. issues with blood sugar imbalance, um, you know, they're fatigued, they have irregular cycles. But can you kind of touch on what are some of the top symptoms of PCOS and how somebody might further investigate to actually get a diagnosis? Because I just feel like there is a lot of confusion around it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what you did, like in your, like how you actually got diagnosed.
2: Yeah. So rightfully so, there's a lot of confusion. And that's because really there's been confusion in the medical establishment um, in the sense that this is like a work in progress. And we have further and further and further refined the diagnostic criteria. So like originally it was this associated thing where you had to have it was named like, you know, PCOS is now known to be kind of a misnomer. But because it's been branded and so that people to, to spread awareness, the name is kind of sticking um, so PCOS is polycystic ovarian syndrome. And so it, it was this idea that everybody who had this syndrome, regardless of how it manifested, was going to have this appearance of cyst-like follicles on the ovary. And they're not actually cysts in the same way that like, an ovarian cyst is a cyst. But these cysts are really um, unruptured follicles. So basically, when we're moving towards ovulation in our ovaries, we have hormonal messengers that tell everything in the ovaries to go, meaning, hey, grow these multiple follicles and one of them is going to pull ahead in the race and be the one that gets to ovulate, right? But what happens in those of us with PCOS is that the the signaling that generates that response is discoordinated. And so nothing pulls ahead. So all of them just kind of keep growing and you see these like multiple cyst-like follicles. But in truth, you can actually have PCOS and not have that. And you can have the appearance of multiple cysts on the ovaries and not actually have PCOS, which is a metabolic syndrome. And because it's a syndrome, which is like a collection of signs and symptoms that lead us to characterize a diagnosis, there isn't like this one thing that rules it in and out. So over time, there's been talk about like, do you see on ultrasound multiple unruptured follicles? Okay, that could be a corroborating sign but it's no longer actually part of the, the diagnostics. So diagnostics tend to be basically um, um, oligomenorrhea or, or missing periods or infrequent non-regular periods is probably the most common. There's definitely women with PCOS who actually do have regular periods though, but that is probably the top sign is some kind of dysregulation or instability in the, in the rhythm of periods in a woman's life. And then um, any signs of what we call like hyperandrogenism. So basically all the hormones that are considered under the androgen are male hormones, which they're not really, they're present in men and women's bodies, female and male bodies biologically. Um, but things like elevations in testosterone or the metabolites, uh, elevations in DHEA. So those also corroborate. That's another diagnostic tool. And then uh, any Presence of insulin resistance in any of its forms or any manifestation, those tend to be like diagnostic criteria that you can assimilate to say, yes, this person is is falls under this umbrella. Other things that do tend to be common in the population would be subfertility or infertility, meaning like a harder time conceiving or, or infertility um, until it's addressed. Um, And also, of course, you mentioned things like acne and then hair growth and hair loss. So hair loss where we don't want to have it, namely on the head in certain patterns, hair growth where we maybe don't want it as women sometimes or as female bodies. Uh, So like, you know, facial hair, more hair on arms, um, genital region, etc. And then there's a myriad of other things. So definitely women with PCOS can tend to gain weight or have a harder time with weight loss, although there are also very lean women with PCOS. Um, And also there are tendencies to things, and these are less talked about, but like they're categorically represented in the research literature, um, an increase in rates of eating disorders and body dysmorphia, increase in less. Like poor stress resilience, increased rates of depression and anxiety, um, increased rates of cardiovascular disease because of the impact of the hormones—not just on our reproductive organs. It's not just a disorder that happens in the uterus or ovaries. It is a you know endocrine, which means whole-body disorder. So you know cardiovascular risk, higher risk of certain types of cancers like endometrial cancers, um, and you know there's a couple of other things, but those are main ones. Um, And then uh, of course, you know, one of the biggest frustrating points for women is the body composition issue um, like that and the insulin resistance that tends to be common in in this population. And it can manifest in different ways. You'll see anything from frank diabetes to just like, you know, um, poor carb tolerance or less ability to stay stable uh, throughout the day with the same glycemic diet someone else would eat.
1: So we know that a lot of women Mm -hmm. will go to their doctor with these sort of symptoms or receive this diagnosis and they receive a prescription for spironolactone or metformin, um, which is essentially blocking those androgen hormones from becoming too high, but it's not getting to the actual root cause. So I know you're a root cause gal and that's what you do. And so what would one, obviously you've talked about nutrition, Um, but we know, you know, there's certain kinds of exercise and lifestyle choices, stress management that play in too. So what would your approach be versus that sort of Mm -hmm. standard one size fits all?
2: Yeah. So the uh, one thing I want to name is that I'm definitely a both and girl. Mm -hmm. So, and what I mean is, um, you know, metformin is a really cool medicine. So yes, I don't think that just giving someone metformin or Spiro is the answer. But that said, um, I have seen spirulactam when appropriately used and when someone's well suited to it, because there's some people who, for a number of other reasons, like won't respond well to it in terms of how they feel overall. But I have seen it really mitigate people's acne. And it's a relatively benign drug in terms of like the level of toxicity it has. Um, And metformin is actually, uh, you know, in research, kind of like can be used to promote longevity and there's a lot of actually beneficial cellular changes it has gl- more globally. And then, you know, of course there's considerations with that medicine and, and who and when, but it can be a really useful tool in some people with relatively low negatives that can be mostly counteracted. So there's that, but, um, yeah, the things that are like non-negotiables in terms of like how, what do we have to consider in the big picture is, um, you know, first and foremost, learning and understanding how to embed a blood sugar balancing diet into the lifestyle. And so for some women, that's just going to be about what the composition and timing of meals are. But for some women, that's going to be about like really negotiating total carb intake to your own personal threshold at different times in your life, because that's going to change depending on if you're like 25 and maybe like running a marathon versus like if you're you know, in your 30s and trying to conceive or carrying to term versus if you're perimenopausal when all of the hormonal changes promote insulin resistance. So we have to even get a little bit like, you know, tighter about our considerations with diet, right? So there's different uh, this, this is a point I like to emphasize to people is that the diet that works for you at one point in your life is not the one you need to stay glued to, because it's going, your needs are going to change your body's changing. And your the diet that works for you at one point, isn't necessarily the one that's going to be optimal for you. So, but definitely nutrition. Okay. And adequacy along with the carb conversation is adequacy of protein. There's a specific reason for that. It's not just like, Hey, we don't want to under eat. There's that but as we get older, we lose muscle, and as we get older, our protein needs go up in order to maintain that. And guess what? Like muscle is a um, endocrine organ, you know, really, because what it is is it's the it's the location of our insulin receptor sites. Primarily, we have the most number of insulin receptor sites on muscle because if you are hunting and gathering, you need you know glucose to get into the muscle so they can keep going, right? So the more muscle we have, the more insulin receptor sites we have, the more insulin sensitive we stay. So I would say that along with adequacy of protein for muscle building and muscle maintaining, as well as for a lot of other things, stabilizing blood sugar and putting on muscle, those are like the three lifestyle steps that are non-negotiable for women living with PCOS. There's a bunch of other stuff like carving out bandwidth, like time for sleep, you know, and then whether or not we're falling asleep and all that. That's a whole other thing that may need to be addressed with each woman, like the why and how do we get to that point. But just making sleep a priority is huge. Um, We see that when we don't sleep, we become more insulin resistant. When we don't sleep enough hours, our stress resilience goes down. And in those of us with PCOS, our stress resilience tends to be lower already. So um, those things really can change quality of life. Um, So those are first step approaches, things I talk to every woman about. And then from there, we're looking at things like, you know, our, all of our glands, like our, our endocrine glands don't live in isolation. You guys know this very well and teach people this. It's like, it's not just ovaries, right? It's like, what's the signal our brain is giving our ovaries and also how, what's the role of the thyroid in that conversation? What's the role of our adrenal glands in that conversation? So like if, you know, so it's all great to try and balance someone's sex hormones, but, but The what's informing all of that is like someone's cortisol and their thyroid hormone. And those all are constantly in this like web of dialogue. So we have to be looking at all those body systems, as well as the microbiome, because we metabolize a huge amount of our estrogens through the gut, as well as other hormones and neurotransmitters. So we have to look at gut health and how we're processing the hormones we do make. So, like, how are we clearing them from the body, and that involves the gut and the liver. So, really, it's that full look at the rest of the body systems that are informing how these um, hormones play, you know, uh, show up in women. But also, then looking at the the nutritional and lifestyle um, steps that really make or break those. To go back to the
0: nutrition stuff, I know with. Well, one, I think it might be helpful if we just give like a quick overview on insulin resistance versus insulin sensitivity, um, because I know that there is still confusion around that. It's actually kind of complicated to explain and to remember, and it took me a long time to figure out an analogy that I could remember in my own mind to be able to explain it to clients. So I think that would be helpful, and and also there's this large conversation around you know, carbohydrates, like you talked about and learning your, your thresholds. And I would love for you to kind of, I just don't think a lot of people are super tuned in with what foods actually serve them and which ones don't. And how do you actually find out if you're carbon tolerant, like what your carb tolerance is, you know? Um, I think that that's, That's a skill. And I don't, I think, you know, even for myself, I'm still figuring that out sometimes. And I think it depends based on where you are in your menstrual cycle, based on your stress levels. But, Mm. you know, I know that's two separate questions, but I just feel like the carb conversation as it relates to insulin resistance is a pretty big one. And I think that it is carbs are often demonized too, but it's learning how to pair them to your point.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. We don't want to demonize whole food groups. Like we use carbs to create energy in the body period so like most of us like like there wasn't really like large groups of population there there were certain um societies but they're like historically evolutionarily there wasn't like huge amounts of people that like cut out whole food groups right like went without carbs and just ate proteins and fats right not ongoing you know so um so we need carbs most of us need some amount of carbs. And and so it's not about like, get rid of all the carbs and your problems are going to go away. We've seen that not to be true. Um, but how we use our carbs and when we eat our carbs and what we combine them with, make or break if they're going to work for us and if they're the right amount, or if we overshoot what we need or don't get enough, etc. And so the idea about... So insulin is a hormone we use to um, help us store versus utilize our carbohydrates. So basically when we eat a food that contains carbohydrates, so these could be in the form of sugar, but also starches. And these come from plants. Carbs are made from plants. So when we eat them, we use whatever we can use immediately, meaning whatever the needs are for our brain and our muscles largely to function. And then we store whatever isn't going to be immediately used. And we do that with a hormone called insulin that basically opens up the storage lockers and puts the carbohydrate away so that we can use it later. And like, you know, historically this was like, okay, now I'm going to go walk 10 miles because I'm hunting and gathering. Okay. We're going to pull some of that reserve blood sugar out or carbohydrate out and convert it into this usable blood sugar for now because my muscles are using it. Okay. Now in today's world, we're not like generally as active throughout the day as our ancestors were and so this becomes problematic the other problem is that we have carb sources available everywhere whereas like they weren't as easy to access in the past and they came in forms with like tons of fiber and we usually had to cook them and process them you know it wasn't like we could open a bag of puffs or whatever it is that we're eating chips and like down (laughs) a bag that just didn't really happen so Now what happens is that we very frequently find ourselves in situations um, where we overshoot the body's need for carbohydrate at that moment um, because they're delicious and we eat them and then it's like, uh-oh, got to do something with that. And so our insulin goes up to put them away. And that's all good and well, that's appropriate. But every time we eat carbs, our insulin goes up. So if we're constantly having to secrete high levels of insulin to meet the high levels of excess carbohydrate or excess blood sugar... Then what happens is that as that the insulin makes the blood sugar come back down the levels of glucose in the blood. And then if that happens over and over again, and is a pretty extreme drop because how high, you know, the higher we go, the higher there is to fall. Then the body sees that as a relative hypoglycemia. And then the next, then what happens is it says, Hey, your blood sugar just dropped, eat carbs. So it sends a signal cravings for carbs and signals to eat. And when we aren't necessarily low in available energy, but we're now low in blood sugar, so we basically start this cycle of now I need to go for some quick available carb again, thus this cycle. So when we eat the right amount of carbs or eat them in a way that makes them absorb a little bit more slowly under like a longer curve into the blood so that we have more opportunity to utilize them without storing them or needing high levels of insulin... Then we do better in terms of stability of energy and staying lean because what insulin does is it is a fat storage hormone. When we can't use that carb, we don't store it; we store it as fat, and so that's where it goes. And so when our storage lockers are full, or basically our fat cells are full, we can't shove any more glucose into there. It's harder, so we need more insulin to do the same amount of work of putting the same that same amount of glucose away. Therefore, we get we say we get insulin resistant. Like, there's not the receptor sites are not taking in the insulin and doing the same net activity from that signal. And that's when we get into problems because insulin, you know, high levels of insulin basically promote oxidative stress and tissue damage and inflammation. And that's not what we want, right? We see free radical production, and that makes all of our systems and tissues not fair as well. So that's how we become insulin resistant. And that's the predecessor to things like diabetes, especially like type 2 diabetes. So, um, okay. So that's kind of like how insulin and glucose work on a basic level. There is definitely way more complexity that we could get into with that, but that's kind of the basics. Now, what's interesting to note and important here in our conversation about women's bodies is that these hormones don't exist in isolation. They, you know, all of our things in our body are doing multiple things at once. And so, for example, you mentioned to this, Jess, you said like at different times in my cycle, right? So like, we're going to be more insulin sensitive in the first half of our cycle when we are naturally and appropriately more estrogen dominant. And we're going to be less insulin sensitive in the second half of our cycle when we are supposed to be in a more progesterone dominant phase um, or in a balanced way, but that's subtle. So it's not like I'm radically diabetic from ovulation on. It's just like, Hey, I'm going to need to like monitor the amount of, you know, maybe be a little more judicious about when and how I eat my carbs to feel as good in that phase. Likewise, when we go into perimenopause, the first thing that happens, because a lot of people are in denial that they're in perimenopause. And I I say that jokingly, but what I mean is that like perimenopause doesn't start like two years before your period stops. And like when you're maybe getting hot flashes or having like over problems like that, it ha- usually starts about 15 years earlier when you're like, maybe like 37, 38, 40, you know? And so that's when we start to see long before we get like hot flashes, we get shifts first in our progesterone levels because we our uh, ovarian function and egg quality start to, well, the egg quality starts to go down. And for other reasons too, for many reasons, we don't ovulate as often and that's normal, healthy, and appropriate. It's just the beginning of the stage of our lives where we're no longer trying to have babies. So the result of that is less net progesterone on any given month, because how we make the most of our progesterone is from the corpus luteum, which is the follicle that, you know, the remaining part of the follicle after we've ovulated the egg. And the purpose of that in our mind's eye is to help sustain a pregnancy. If that if there's a conception progesterone helps to make the lining hospitable to hold the baby. Um, and get the blood vessels flowing to nourish that growing embryo. So when we don't ovulate, we don't make as much progesterone, right? So our hormones start to shift. And first we see our progesterone go down and progesterone in some capacities helps us stay insulin sensitive, but also later on in the perimenopausal kind of spectrum, when our estrogen starts to finally go down, then we definitely become less sensitive to our, Insulin because estrogen does help promote insulin sensitivity and maintain it. So, both of those. And then we become, when both our progesterone and estrogen are lower relative to our available testosterone, then what happens is we become even more insulin resistant because higher levels of androgen will promote that too. So, it becomes something that we need to, you know, maybe we had more wiggle room in our 20s and 30s. And then as we get closer to menopause and in menopause, we're going to have less wiggle room, which is why women will be like, Hey, I hear this a lot. I'm doing the same thing. I'm eating the same diet and doing the same workout that always kept me kind of like good. And now my weight's creeping up, but I'm not doing something different. Like what's going on? That's what's going on, you know? Mm -hmm. So Anyway, so it's not always just about what you're eating. It's the rest of the hormones and how they're influencing that hormone.
1: And then last part of her question to the carb Mm. decision, or
2: how you find, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. How you find? Uh, yeah. So the carb thing. Okay. So first of all, there's certain rules we should all be kind of become aware of and try to implement uh, most of the time, which is like um, most bodies do better when they try not to eat just carbs by themselves. So if you want your carbs to absorb slower, the best thing to do is to eat them with one with fiber. So in forms that come packaged with a lot of fiber. Two with protein, and then three would be with fat. Now, depending on who you are and what your goals are for body composition, there's reasons to combine carb with fat or not to. That's more complicated than we need to get right now. But just this idea that when we don't eat just carbs alone, like okay, I'm not going to eat like, um, you know, some dried fruit with MMs. That's basically all turning to sugar. Or if I have like oatmeal with berries. And some oat milk for breakfast and then put a little bit of maple syrup on that that's like just a straight sugar bolus with a little but yeah so we have to ground it i think about like grounding it with fats or proteins right so that's principle number one and then the other thing is how much carb are we eating at once so like eating like a huge kind of like burrito bowl from chipotle with like a massive amount of rice plus the beans plus the whatever else is getting tossed in there Is probably going to overshoot most people's ability to burn and use that carb at one time so i try to get my women um, and this is like a little gem i try to get people to eat their carbs um, based on their life meaning if you eat them earlier in the day in general you're going to have a longer period of time to burn through them number two if you eat them right before you're about to use your muscles Or in the maybe two at one to two hour window after you just used your muscles, you are going to burn them slower and use more of them and store less of them. So what we want to do is give our body carbs, but we want to give them the carbs as fuel. Like, when are we going to use this? So for me, what that looks like is like, I tend to do my workouts in the morning just because whatever my life works that way and my kids' childcare and work schedule. So it's like, okay, I have, you know, some serving of my carbs, which is personalized before I go work out usually. And then I have like a post-workout kind of a shake that will also include some kind of carb intentionally because it helps to build muscle. And then within another like two hours, I'll have like another kind of like a lunch and that will have a little bit of carb. And then for the rest of the day, I'm not gonna have my carb. So what I'm not doing is waiting until dinner time to eat a bunch of pasta or something like that and then go to sleep, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that is a tiny tweak to how we like where in the day we put our things that doesn't talk about cutting out whole food groups or eliminating, you know, our ability to enjoy something that's just about when you eat it. Right.
0: What about for someone that let's say that someone after they eat what you're explaining, like, let's say they eat an oatmeal and they put like protein powder in it and nuts and like, they're really balancing it but they still have like a pretty big crash, like an hour later and they feel really hungry versus someone else who has that meal and they feel great. Maybe it's the same time of day. They've both done a workout. Like let's say that the situations are the same, but that person maybe is less tolerant to that carbohydrate. Would that be because that person is potentially more insulin resistant and maybe has to be a little bit more diligent about like, when they have their carbohydrates and the types of carbohydrates. Because yeah. I, you
2: know. Totally great question because this is something we like we'll experience or see. So um yes. So for example, um for that scenario, it's about the ratio. So it's in who and when and it's the ratio. So for example, that same meal where you're like, okay, I'm consciously adding protein powder, you know, making protes or whatever, and then adding some nuts and see, you know, and all that, which is like a, a really common meal, especially like in the fitness world. Um, it's just that maybe the one, one person's body can do like, um, let's say a cup of oatmeal. Right. And like, that's great for them and they feel good. They feel stable. They don't like get tired or foggy or crash or feel like they need a nap later. They don't get mood swingy. They just burn it. Whereas someone like me, I can have a quarter cup of oats and that has to be in the context of my 20 to 30 gram protein bolus and that I can handle you know, but that's just my body as a PCOS perimenopausal woman, right? And so most people aren't scooping out a quarter cup of oatmeal. Like that's not usually what they're doing. And so it becomes this thing of that personalization of carb tolerance, which was the other part of your question. And so what I do for that is three things. One is basic blood work. Like you can get at like your GP's office, like looking at markers of relative insulin sensitivity. So we're looking at things like fasting glucose, fasting insulin, um, which I like to see below five or five or below. Um, and then, um, and which also just interestingly enough, you'll often see subtle, uh, like ways that fasting insulin is not optimal earlier than you're going to see like a fasting glucose go up or HBA1C is another marker that's commonly run. Like you'll see the fasting insulin change long before that happens in my experience. Um, so, those HbA1c, C, fructosamine, um, and then um, uh, like the markers around uh, lipids, so triglycerides, LDL, you'll start to see shifts in those getting higher than optimal when someone is less efficiently using their carb and storing more of it as fat, because that primarily happens in the liver first. So, we'll look at those markers on like basic labs and some others sometimes. I like to look at in real time, what glucose is doing. So I have like an instruction sheet I can give to you guys where it's like at home, test your blood sugar with a, gl- a glucometer, like good old finger prick thing, you know, which they're easy to access. You do have to buy the strips. Um, if you're not, you know, diagnosed as, as diabetic or pre-diabetic. Um, but this is useful long before that just everyone should do this at some point and you test, you know, fasting and then you test before you eat meals and at one hour and two hour after meals. And I don't have people do that like ongoing, but just for like three random days, or if they want to eat something that's maybe a little bit out of their norm and see how their body responds to it. So by doing that, I learned like amazing things the first time I did it, where it was like, oh, wow, I can't eat apples or butternut squash, which are whole foods without having really big spikes. I also can't eat stevia or I have a really big spike. Stevia has sugar. Mm -hmm. This is actually a common one, Um, but I could do sweet potato just fine, and I could do like some other fruits that I would have suspected, like pineapple, was fine, and which is a higher glycemic food traditionally. So different people's bodies actually respond to different carbs differently at different times of day, too. So when you do this for a while, you'll find that like, oh, I personally tend to have my most, I'm most sensitive to my insulin and able to tolerate a little more carb either first thing in the morning or um, sometimes at midday, depending where I am in my cycle. Whereas like my carb tolerance at night is like zero. So, but different people are different. And so it's really interesting to really look at those numbers and start to see the patterns. Um, So I'll have people do that as just a way of like, wow, this is eye opening. And then the other great tool I love are- Sorry, really, really quick. I want to hear about the other
0: tool too, but just quick follow-up to that is I've heard- with like a sign of insulin resistance is if you if your glucose levels don't go back to post meal within 2 hours after a meal is that what you say too
2: yeah so yes um so yeah within 2 hours you want them to return to pre meal levels and also um the the degree of shift is so there's optimal there's super optimal and then there's like not okay levels right so like we are trying to avoid glucose going above 140 ever. Now, what people need to know is even people with normal glucose response are occasionally going to have what's called glucose excursions where they do go above 140, but it's like, yeah, you ate a cupcake or something, you know, like, yeah, that's going to do it, you know? So, but as long as they return back to normal and don't have like crashes and they're not doing that every day, it tends to be all right, you know, but then there's people, you know, who are eating like, not necessarily like a dessert or cupcake and their glucose is regularly 160 or 145. That's a problem, right? So so then we have to address that. But in in a more ideal world, I like people to stay most of the time under or up to 120. That's better control. And if I'm being really tight and we're going for like super optimal function, and this is pretty nitpicky, you can arguably try to maintain a level between like 70 and 100. Mm-hmm. And I've done that for periods of my life. Like I went through gestational diabetes and pregnancy. And so that was my target to stay between 70 and hundred. And that is, you can do that with diet. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So those are the markers we're kind of looking at uh, just to be like, you know, more uh, definitive about that. Um, and then you and- can also, you can also
1: have insulin resistance without PCOS, right? Yes. Oh, totally. That- oh. What would be some of the symptoms for someone who's wondering, could this be my situation?
2: Yeah. Often in the beginning. Um, so first there can be no signs. Um, there can be, and then the rest of the signs, like, so it'll often first look kind of like hypoglycemia. Okay. So um, the f- hypoglycemia and insulin resistance are kind of like opposite sides of the same coin and one can lead to the other. And so what will happen is that um and I think this was something I first learned from Datis Karazi and like kind of the way he explained this. And this has stuck, and it's something I've told like hundreds or thousands of people I've worked with, is that when we eat food, the only thing we should ever feel is no longer hungry. If we eat food and we feel like our brain just came back online or we're no longer shaky, angry, hangry, anxious, spacey, or some other feeling, then that means our blood sugar was too low either we waited too long between meals or whatever we most of the time, what it is is whatever we ate at the last meal overshot our carb tolerance and crashed us. That's usually what it is. So if we eat food and then what we feel is, you know, either immediately or one to two hours later, sleepy, foggy, spacey, or like you need a nap, then that means you just overshot your carb tolerance for you at that meal at that time of day. So I look for those signs first, right? Is like, that's how it's going to feel for most people. However, people cannot register those because maybe they like have coffee and overshoot the fatigue feeling or whatever it is and still be having glucose spikes. So you have to kind of get granular with people. Um, But other things people will notice will be, of course, like uh, weight gain or trouble losing weight is common. So especially in the belly area, like around the midsection is where it'll start to show up first, but other women will just kind of more ubiquitously gain weight. Um, and then um um problems with sleep are very common. so dysregulate hard time falling asleep, hard time staying asleep. while well, both of those can be due to other hormones, very commonly are dysregulations in blood sugar. And what I find is the more stable we keep our blood sugar through the day, more stable it will be at night. So that helps with sleep. Um, and then um mood and and anxiety. So one i I said I had panic attacks what I've found to be true is that like 90% of panic attack sufferers have dysregulated blood sugar. And you will, if you really think about when they experience the panic attack, it's almost always when they're having some, some level of hypoglycemia. So the first thing I do with anyone who's having panic attacks or high level anxiety is like work on how and when they're eating what. Mm. And oftentimes I'll have people come back and be like, wow, that's like either that's gone or like, um, it's like fifty percent better. or, You know, I have the less frequent. You know, so that's a it's a huge piece in almost anyone who has that. Amazing. I'm also
0: curious. Um, what are your thoughts on inositol versus metformin? Because I've been reading a lot about that and how impactful it can be, especially for women for P- with PCOS. Um, is that something that you know much about? And is it something that you've tried yourself?
2: Yes. <laughs> so what I think about it is yes. I'm joking. What I mean is like yeah. both and, like they don't counteract each other or rule each other out. So first and foremost, like everyone with PCOS should be on some form of inositol. It doesn't even matter if you're wildly insulin resistant or not showing signs of that. Um, just it's for many reasons, it incorporates or it enhances the signaling we need for PCOS. So I would say like if the, like if we were talking in the world of supplements, Um, for PCOS, there's like certain things I just give everyone. Right. And there's very few of them. (laughs) There's very few of them, but beyond like a multi with a high quality omega and some vitamin D is like inositol, usually in the combo D-chiro and myo and the right ratios is designated by the literature, but like in significant amount, because a lot of people aren't taking in enough inositol. They're like, Oh, I'm taking two capsules of this blend or whatever. And it's like, no, like what really is shown to work is like six grams a day. So like, that's a lot. You got to, that's a powder. You're doing a powder in a scoop, you know? So there's that. And then metformin is an option for people. And I find that that's more effective when there is some level of known and measurable insulin resistance, right? And then I tend to like the time release form and like often women with PCOS are having more like morning spikes, like morning waking elevation. So I have, like take it at night before bed and do certain other things. Um, but I don't like think that everybody needs metformin. Um, there's also some women who do quite well with berberine, especially with some AMPK support built into that, but like for peripheral glucose utilization, it can achieve a very similar thing. And while berberine is antimicrobial and can have impact on the gut, it's also, um, shown to increase beneficial strains in the gut. And so there was a time in my practice where I was very skeptical skeptical about this long-term use of berberine concept. But I think in the right individual, it can be extremely helpful. So I do sometimes lean into a berberine. Um, and then the one thing that everyone with PCOS gets, and I'm sorry, you didn't ask me this question. You asked specifically about metformin and acetol. but this is just here. No, that's great. Yeah. Um, progesterone. So my favorite thing in my arsenal of things I use after all these years, the thing that I like would, if I was on an island and I could take one thing, you know. <laughs> is bioidentical progesterone. It is incredible. It's an incredible substance. It has none of the risk factors associated with other forms of hormone therapies. Um, You know, it doesn't increase rates. It, It mitigates rates of things like breast cancers and other cancers we're concerned about. Um, helps balance hormones in a way that would like reduce the tendency to gain weight in people um, and helps with sleep because we need enough progesterone to have enough GABA and a million other things. I use it in my histamine clients, but in people with PCOS, I always use it because it, when given in a cyclical fashion, regulates the signaling of the hormone called LH that is used as the rhythm producer that starts the process of triggering ovulation. And in PCOS, women have, that is discoordinated. We tend to shout loud with P, with LH and the ovaries aren't responding. So it's kind of like that wolf in sheep's clothing where the LH is like loud, loud, higher, more, go, trying to get this action to happen. And the ovaries are less responsive. And so when you use progesterone, it kind of normalizes the LH. So it's a more recognizable pattern that the ovaries can go, oh, I know what you're asking me to do. And then what we see is more regulated ovulation. This is not the same. As progestins in birth control, so we are not achieving that result when people with PCOS get given birth control. Um, this is body bioidentical natural progesterone.
1: Yes, I should have um, actually said that first when I said women get put straight on medication because the mo- the most problematic would be to be put straight on the synthetic birth control. And Justin and I just recorded an uh, interview the other week where we were talking about how we're not here to demonize medication. And I know I shared with you in my yeah. consult, Brie, and I shared this in the last episode that like I do have a medication for sleep that I keep on hand that sometimes I, I do use for travel because it's really hard for me to adjust. And it's nice just to know it's there. And a lot of people need medication for a lot of different reasons. And I loved your approach in that call that we had to say, hey, Okay, so use it, take off the stress, you know? And I think it's an important message for women. And it doesn't mean, and the way I asked you was not to imply that women should not be taking medications like that if they need them. But the problem is that there's often not alternatives provided or any discussions explained about, like you said, and what else could we consider? Not every woman needs to be necessarily on metformin, a lot of women might see great benefits from some of these supplements you discussed, from adjusting their diet, from bringing down inflammation and stress with their workout routine, you know? So it's like, that's why we all exist or why we are so passionate because we know that there's so much
2: missing from those doctor's appointments. So true. And so well said. I I really think that's such an important point to drive home is like not to demonize the medicines. It's about time and place and in who and when and cost to benefit. So, like it's like, okay, is the benefit, the hormonal benefit, as well as like all the other benefit of sleeping going to offset any potential cost of taking a drug that helps you get there, you know, and especially occasionally, And while we carve out bandwidth for us to work on repatterning that from whatever other reason? and the other thing I want to acknowledge is that a lot of the reason we wind up having to use medications to achieve things. and and this is a little bit of an opinion statement, but I think a lot of practitioners who will say this would agree with this is that when we are using natural medicines to, they can be quite powerful for reprogramming and reformatting signaling systems in our body and how things are working. Absolutely. Or I wouldn't be doing this line of work. Right. However, we, we forget that it's like putting broccoli in capsules. I mean, a little more powerful than that, but like, you've got to like, when we're using the supplement side of things, it's like, it's going to take a while. We see like 10% to fifteen improvement per month over time, or like, you know, we're going in a direction because we are working with the natural physiology and restoring it and not overriding it with a drug. However, all of that is existing in the context usually of people like they're like stress being managed. And there's sometimes stuff that's like in today's world, especially out of people's control, for example, like, Oh yeah. Remember how the world almost just ended three years ago, guys? Like, do you remember that? Cause I remember that talk about collective trauma, right? That's just one thing that was totally out of all our control. That was a huge trauma. Right. But then you have things like other traumas in people's lives that like, you know, We can't just expect to override the impact of that by like, you know, okay, I'm going to rebalance your HPA axis with some DHEA and pregnenolone and adaptogenic herbs and all the thing and vitamin nutrients. Like that's great. And yes, to a point, but there's things we can't override. So sometimes when like someone isn't able to, to get the support they need or isn't for whatever reason is still experiencing the trauma, God forbid, or whatever it is, um, there's a time and a place when those medications are useful because like we're talking about something that's going to cost them a lot, like in the long run, like if they have like extreme forms of depression or anxiety or insomnia that are like paralyzing, you know, we can make that okay so that people looking for using, who do want to use natural approaches and are doing their best don't have this like shame thing going on around it. Amen.
0: I think that's so important. And speaking of stress and trauma traumatic events impacting our hormones and just how we show up. I think sometimes, you know, we do kind of want to go first towards these other lifestyle factors, but oftentimes it is bubbling under the surface or something very present that you're going through. And we know that you went through a divorce with a toddler in tow in the throes of perimenopause, and that is a traumatic event.
2: Yeah, it was. Yeah. So yeah. that's how uh, I got into this group, like this group work with this group of perimenopausal women. I was kind of like, okay, I mean, I'm going to be completely honest. It's like, I love the work I do. I really do. I love seeing the light go on in people's eyes. And, but over the last 15 to 20 years, a lot of the work I've done has been digging people who really don't feel well and haven't felt well for quite some time and have many, many layers, helping them dig themselves out of these trenches and that's extremely rewarding and it, and functional medicine and chinese medicine are brilliant for that. They do work. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of uh it's just it can, it can lead to burnout. So, contextually, yeah, like for me what was going on is like okay, I, you know, did IVF in my late 30s which went really well. It was like radically successful. Com, com, you know, because of all the things I did leading up and it was a great experience overall. Amazing. Yeah, I was really stoked. Um conceived, you know what at, at at age conceived and gave birth basically at age 40. And that was also an incredible experience, but I did have gestational diabetes. And oh, to answer your question, I did use metformin. Um, I used everything else and I used a keto diet and I used a low dose time-release metformin taken before bed. And that was what got me through without using any insulin and eating completely, you know, uh, having a very healthy Symptom free uh, pregnancy and a wonderful delivery experience using hypnobirthing, which was awesome. And I'm grateful I had the experience I did. It was very long, but it was.
1: Sorry, that was real quick. Hypnobirthing.
2: Oh my God. I can't say enough about this. Like, if anyone's pregnant or thinking about having a baby, just like do it. Just don't ask, just go do hypnobirthing. It's basically hypnosis specific for your birthing time. And it's, you use it as a, it's a complete system that you use in place of the standard like birth education you might go to. And it uses neuro-linguistic programming to use different vocabulary to conceptualize what it is to expect and what's happening during the birthing experience. So we don't get imprinted in our systems, this expectation of fear, danger, and, and pain. And so what happens is you can use your mind very powerfully and you do this. The beautiful thing is you do it with a birthing partner. So this could be like, if you have a spouse or a partner, them, it can be like a sister, a friend, a doula, you know, whoever you can even do it yourself and you can do it with tapes. There's recordings, but you do this practice during your pregnancy where you're listening to these recorded hypnosis trainings and they're um, progressive. And you're doing these practices with whoever the partner is or self, if you're doing self, And um, it allows you, it really helps women to like stay completely present, but in a hypnotic state during their birth. So no matter what birthing experience you have, whether you're having like a natural and medicated birth or a medicated birth, or even like a surgical delivery, like a C-section, you still get to use these tools to like have it be a very empowering experience that you're very much in control and able to influence the experience you're having. So for me, what it meant is that when I talk about my birthing experience, I had a 37-hour uh, delivery um, and four hours was in active labor, meaning I had four hours of active pushing, which is a very long time. Oh. Yeah. And I hadn't eaten the whole time and like it was kind of a wild ride, but I was in hypnotic state the entire time. And at no point during the delivery, except for one instance, can I say that I experienced what I would call pain. Hmm there was a lot of intensity of sensation and just like the whole thing is intense and there's things happening in your body that you will never, ex- you know, experience outside of that, that ex- setting of birth, birthing. Um, but there was like one brief moment that was like so intense. I would say, Oh yeah, that was painful. And it was like, you know, the the ring of fire thing. Right. And then that was done so quickly. It was just like, oof. And then there we are and you're out. But um, so anyway, what I am going to say is that it also minimized the amount of, Birth trauma that I came out with because there was some stuff that happened at the end by virtue of how long the birth was. Whereas I didn't get to meet my daughter for two hours. And she's fine. She was fine. She was totally fine. But like there was just this kind of like uh, moment of like uncertainty. And I stayed really calm through that whole thing because I'd been in hypnosis for like 30 something hours. Wow. Um, and as a result, like I didn't have a lot to process after that stayed with me that way. I'm very grateful for that tool. So I would highly recommend it to anybody. Yeah. Um, Thank you. That's so cool. Yeah. So it was cool. So I did the IVF, gave birth, became a mama while running like a company with, I had four practitioners working with me and a team of people helping, um, you know, and was, uh, largely the main provider for the family uh, and at times the sole provider. And then, um, Then COVID. So, you know, my my daughter was born in 2019 in the summer and then COVID happened and she was like eight months pandemic. So that was like insane. Um, And then my, um, unfortunately, my father suffered a catastrophic stroke completely unexpectedly because he didn't have like the health risks you would associate with that. Um, mm-hmm. very specific situation, but that happened. He was living in Portland. I was living in the Bay area in California. And so I didn't get to even be with him. Like there was this, oh, like, no. oh, what to happen? And so he is alive and doing extremely well, ah, so um, good, yeah. Yeah. but that was part of the impetus to move up here. So okay. we moved to Portland kind of still in the like second, third year of the pandemic and left this huge support network of friends in the um, Bay area. Um, And came up here to be closer to my family of origin. And um, so there was like beauty and all of that, but it was a lot of change and a lot of like moving away from support networks. And then, um, yeah, and then um, went through a divorce um which was you know which is a lot of things that's a whole conversation but um is a, appropriate and what needed to happen but also challenging and then you know have been in the f- in the first year and so of like navigating single parenting and co-parenting and some other things that were embedded in that situation so yeah so has there been circumstantial stress lots of it hmm. so this was all happening while I was going from age 40 to 45 and basically having those hormonal changes and watching that in my own body. And I was struggling with like, you know, I couldn't shake. I I had only gained 20 pounds total in pregnancy because of the keto diet and all that. So that went away, like literally within two days of giving birth. But my IVF weight wouldn't budge because I had gained about like 15, 10 to 15 pounds of IVF weight. And so that just stayed. And, you know, the pandemic experience wasn't helpful for that. And then, like, here I was, like, three and a half years post delivery, going, like I don't recognize my body. And, like, I could see change- changes in my skin. Now, given, like, it's all relative to where we were, but, like, I could notice that my skin was struggling and, like, I just didn't feel vital. I didn't have, like, my energy. I'm a very energetic person and I just didn't feel great. And, Yeah. So, um, it was just kind of like, okay, wait a minute. I need to apply all the things I know. And how would I, and then when I did all those things, the turnaround and how I felt was so fast and so like easy, it just wasn't hard. I just had to do the things. Um, and so a lot of it looked like I needed to start to really implement like lifting weights and lifting heavier, as opposed to like the things that I do love doing, but was like, you know, um, Pilates and yoga and bar and that stuff was great, but like, it wasn't, doing the thing I needed. And so I needed to really start lifting heavy and I needed to start really focusing in on the macros and my diet in this way, eating way more protein than I was getting and, um, really dialing in my current carb tolerance and understanding that now in this body, as opposed to five years ago or 10 years ago, um, and prioritizing sleep and prioritizing joy, prioritizing things in my life that brought me joy and aliveness. And that's a huge piece too. So I, um, encourage that in every woman I work with. But, uh, and then running the labs and looking at the like hormones and underlying stuff. But I will say that, like, you know, basically when I started that, it was like 12 weeks later, I had shed most of the weight I was looking to shed yeah. and can much more, you know, muscle and um, was just feeling like a whole different human. So, in that experience, I knew like, hey, you know what? This is something a lot of women need. Like, I'm hearing all my girlfriends talk about this. And, um, we just need the course that no one gave us, <laughs> you know, like, Oh, I guess I'll make it. So, you know,
1: yeah. here we are. Wow. I just can't believe how much you've, you've been through. There were other things we didn't um, get to either, but in every way you've made your, uh, I don't know the, the phrase, your mess meth- is your message, <laughs> Yeah, <but you're, laughs> yeah. a cool, a more unique version of that, but in you're, way, paying, yeah. your well, you're both- paying your purpose. You're paying your purpose all <laughs> the <laughs> ones.
2: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: yes. Yeah.
2: But lemonade. Like,
1: yeah. yeah, exactly. And so can you share a little bit more about uh, the course that you are offering or just how women can um, can find can find the support in perimenopause awesome. by working with you?
2: Yeah. Okay. So yeah, Um, I'm so excited about this course. I'm having so much fun with it. The women in the course are amazing and we're having a blast. And so um, there's a huge in-person component where there's live calls every week with both myself and also my counterpart in the program. I brought in a high-level fitness professional nutritionist who specializes in working with women and women's bodies at all stages of life. And so uh, together we create these personalized programs for women with nutrition, workout plans, as well as using the lab-based functional medicine protocols to rekindle the three main, what I call anti-aging body systems. And it is an anti-aging and longevity program, but it's specific for women in this kind of like 15 year up to menopause and in menopause for like, how do we do this now? And then in the course, basically I teach people the why, like, what's the physiology behind this? Like, why do we care about that? And like, what is this actually translating to in your body? And then coach them on the action steps. So it's like, how do we actually do this and put it into a logical order that is the most effective and efficient. And so it's been really fun. Um, and women can find out more about it, um, at, well, so there's my website, brieweiselman.com. I don't actually talk about the program a lot on the website, but it's a great place to just find me and some of the work I've done and a lot of the blogs. written in free information and resources and then if you want to find out more about the program specifically which is called the reverse age method um, the website for that is stayyoungmethod.com and that will take you to an educational webinar um, and also the opportunity to book a call with me so i talk to everybody in person who is interested to make sure we don't accept everyone into the program i really want to make sure to accept um, women who are, I think really going to benefit and like who I know, like, okay, based on what you're coming in with, this is the right fit for you. And you're gonna, you know, it's going to be worth your while. So I just talk to everybody to find out what they're needing and, you know, where they're at and what they've tried and what's working and what's not working and uh, make sh- and answer questions. And then if for some reason it's not the best fit, you know, and they're more of a one-on-one they need some one-on-one help first. I can, rep, um, you know, recommend that we do that, or give referrals to other really great practitioners I know. So, yeah,
1: that sounds incredible. Yeah. yeah. Before we go, because Jess mentioned off air, but you have, people can't see you right now, but you're glowing. You are gorgeous. Your skin's amazing. Your hair is luscious. Is there, (laughs) are there some like low level tips that you can like help us out with for
2: how we can look? uh, Yeah. Thank you so much. First of all, for that. Um, So one is, you know, I got, I get my hormones on straight. So, you know, we fix hormones we can fix hormones by giving hormones, but that's not the only step. So I really need to say that with clarity is the underlying body systems that inform how that all works. And then, yes, I use some bioidentical hormones and there's ways to use them topically and internally that are safe and monitored and all of those things. That's another convo for another day. Um, And I do, you know, um, just the whole foods nutrition with high, high levels of proteins And of diversity of like fats and nutrients and above ground veggies and all as much as I can get in. And then um, for like hair and skin. So uh, I have, I'm, I have like uh, multiple ethnicities (laughs) ancestrally. And so I have people can't see, but I have like a lot of hair and it's very, very curly. And um, so for my type of hair, I don't do a lot of like heavy shampooing that happens very like sparsely and a lot of conditioning. <laughs> um, and there's whole routines for that and different products I use, but they wouldn't be relevant for like every person. Yes. Skincare, um, I'm actually kind of simplistic, but but I cover all the bases. So that looks like exfoliate, exfoliate, exfoliate from a number of different like methods, like literal, like physical, like microplanning, but also like enzyme type things or um alpha hydroxies, beta hydroxies, acids. And then um moisture, moisture, moisture and barrier. So um there are internal things I take for that and go through in my course and my handouts and a lot of the blogs and stuff too. But you know, that's gonna look like a non-foaming cleanser, um, you know, and then things like um serums that have uh um, the specific weights of um, hyaluronic acids and peptides, which we now have. Peptides are amazing. Oh my God. And regenerative. And then, um, you know, a ha- sunscreen, 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 retinoids. I like retinoids versus retinols. They're both very valid, but that is like a key piece I can't live without. And then a high quality, you know, moisturizer, depending on the season, lighter or heavier. Um, those are the main things I would say that I do consistently. And then I have some little like this and that that I do, but um, you know, it's all at home. Oh, and I'm an acupuncturist. So I use a lot of like micro type yeah. uh, things and I get all my patients doing that. At least the kind you can do yourself and not in office. Oh, um, cool. I'm a big fan of micro needling. Yeah.
1: Love it. Yeah. Well, this has been so informative. I'm so happy we finally got you on. I would love to do another part if we could in the future, um, on God, any number of topics that were brought up here today that we couldn't dive into further, but thank you so much for the time. And yeah, I hope we, we get to have some, some more chats. Awesome. Thank you. Did we say your, your Instagram handle?
2: Oh yeah. It's just my name, Bree Weiselman. So at Bree Wiselman and, um, Probably the spelling of my last name will be in the show notes somewhere. It's a little tricky. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll link everything. And message me. I love chatting with people. So ask your questions. Uh hit me up. I'm I hang out on there quite a bit. So thank Perfect. you for having me. This is really we Appreciate fun. you. Bye.
0: Wealth of knowledge. This, little, this yeah. is really great. And I think our listeners are going to benefit a lot. So thanks so much. Oh, yeah. yeah. All
2: right. <laughs> thank you.